Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! If you believe our independent reporting is essential, please sign up for a monthly gift of $5, $10, or even $20 a month today by visiting democracynow.org. That's democracynow.org. Your gift will be matched dollar for dollar by a generous donor. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! Then we heard that the dam had burst and the water had flooded the area. People were asleep and no one was ready. But this is what happens. What can we do? For me, my house is next to the valley, opposite the Al-Shahaba Mosque. The whole family lives next to each other. We're all neighbors. We lost 30 people so far, 30 members of the same family. We haven't found anyone. More than 6,000 people have died in the Libyan city of Derna after a massive storm caused two dams to burst, leading to a catastrophic flood. Entire neighborhoods of the city were swept into the sea. Thousands remain missing. We'll go to Libya for the latest. Then how Columbia University ignored women, undermined prosecutors, and protected a predator for more than 20 years. That's the headline of an explosive new investigation by ProPublica and New York Magazine. We'll speak to the journalist who wrote the piece about Dr. Robert Haddon, an OBGYN who was sentenced in July to 20 years in a federal prison for sexually assaulting patients during exams over two decades. We'll also speak to a survivor. More than a decade ago, her sexual assault led to Haddon's arrest, but Columbia allowed him to go back to work where he assaulted more women. It's been 11 years since June 29, 2012, when I called the police after my postpartum appointment. I had just given birth to a baby girl. In that 11 years, we've been fighting to incarcerate Robert Haddon for the heinous crimes he committed on hundreds of women. Now, we have to look forward and continue our fight to bring the hospital accountable and to the forefront of this concealing of this crime. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In Libya, rescue efforts continue in the eastern city of Derna following the catastrophic flooding brought about by Storm Daniel's torrential rains, which caused two dams to burst. An estimated 6,000 people have died, though that number is expected to go up. Bodies have been buried in mass graves. In front of Derna's hospital, people are searching for their loved ones amidst the dead bodies lined up on the ground. This is the hospital's manager at Mohammed Al-Kabisi. The number of dead in this particular section is 1,700 deaths so far. We counted them as they were lying in the hallways. Whoever is identified is then buried. There are some who have not been identified. So we started photographing them and assigning numbers to them, then burying them as well. On the other side, they buried 500 people. Things are very bad. The hospital is dilapidated. 
Derna's mayor said the city's dams have not been maintained since 2002. Much of Libya's infrastructure has crumbled during the years-long war and political instability, fueled by U.S. and foreign intervention that's gripped the nation. After headlines, we'll speak with a climate activist in Tripoli. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has ordered three congressional committees to launch an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. It appears that the president's family has been offered special treatment by Biden's own administration, treatment that not otherwise would have received if they were not related to the president. These are allegations of abuse of power, obstruction, and corruption, and they warrant further investigation by the House of Representatives. The move came under pressure from far-right Republicans who threatened to remove him as speaker. House investigations led by Republicans have not produced any evidence that Biden personally benefited from his son Hunter Biden's business deals. McCarthy did not schedule a full House vote on opening the inquiry, as some more moderate Republicans have opposed the action. This all comes as McCarthy's trying to gain his party's support for a deal to keep the government funded beyond a looming September 30th deadline. Florida's far-right lawmaker, Matt Gates threatened Tuesday to bring a motion that could oust McCarthy over the spending bill, investigations into the Bidens and other issues. Mr. Speaker, you are out of compliance with the agreement that allowed you to assume this role. The path forward for the House of Representatives is to either bring you into immediate total compliance or remove you pursuant to a motion to vacate the chair. The White House said the impeachment inquiry was, quote, extreme politics at its worst, while House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries dismissed it as illegitimate and, quote, a kangaroo court fishing expedition and conspiracy theater rolled into one. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un and Russian President Vladimir Putin met earlier today at the Vostokny Cosmodrome in far eastern Russia. Just hours before the leaders met, Pyongyang fired two short-range ballistic missiles off its east coast. Kim spoke as the brief summit opened. Russia is now in the sacred fight against hegemonic forces in order to protect its sovereignty and security interests. We have constantly expressed our full and unconditional support for all the decisions taken by the president and the Russian leadership, and I want to assure you that we will always be together with Russia in the fight against imperialism. The details of the Kim-Putin summit are not known, but North Korea and Russia are expected to be in talks over the trade of weapons and military technology. Meanwhile, during a speech at the Eastern Economic Forum in Vladivostok on Tuesday, Putin said Donald Trump's prosecution shows the rottenness of U.S. politics. In Vietnam, dozens of people are feared dead after a massive fire broke out late Tuesday at a nine-story apartment building in the capital, Hanoi. An official death toll has not been released, but local outlets say at least 30 people were killed, including children, as the blaze was extinguished in the early hours of the morning. More than 50 others were severely injured and taken to hospital. Witnesses who live near the apartment building described hearing residents screaming for help as they tried to flee the building, which reportedly only had one exit. The small apartment balconies were also surrounded by iron bars. One witness said a small boy was thrown out from the building as the flames consumed the complex. Several others reportedly jumped out to escape. 
In the Philippines, Nobel Peace Prize laureate and journalist Maria Ressa and her website, Rappler, have been acquitted of their final tax evasion charge. They were acquitted of four other tax evasion charges in January. Maria Ressa had been systematically persecuted for her work by former President Rodrigo Duterte. Ressa still faces three other cases, including a six-year sentence for cyber libel from 2020, which she is now appealing to the Supreme Court. To see our interviews with Maria Ressa, go to democracynow.org. Here in the U.S., new data shows the poverty rate among children more than doubled last year due to record inflation and the expiration of the child tax credit. The pandemic relief helped decrease child poverty rate to a historic low of 5.2 percent in 2021. That figure surged over 12 percent after conservative Democratic Senator Joe Manchin and congressional Republicans opposed an extension of the relief. Manchin was the decisive vote. He falsely claimed some low-income parents used the payments to to buy drugs when data showed most families use the money to buy food and help with rent. The debt collective said on social media, quote, Joe Manchin's legacy includes artificially manufacturing child poverty for no reason other than his callous disregard for human beings, unquote. Overall poverty also increased in 2022 to 12.4%, up from 7.8% in 2021, with more than 37 million U.S. residents living in poverty, the largest single-year jump ever recorded in the U.S. The Center for Reproductive Rights filed lawsuits on behalf of eight patients and four OBGYNs in three states, Idaho, Tennessee, and Oklahoma. The plaintiffs argue abortion bans led to doctors refusing to provide the procedure, even in emergency situations, over fears of prosecution and other penalties. One of the patients, Nicole Blackman, was forced to carry out her pregnancy after doctors in Tennessee refused to provide an abortion, even though there was no chance the fetus would survive. She went on to suffer from preeclampsia which can be fatal, and delivered a stillborn seven months into the pregnancy. Nancy Northup, head of the Center for Reproductive Rights, said, quote, no one should have to be at death's door to receive essential health care. But that's exactly what happens when doctors are forced to practice medicine under threat of imprisonment. The women standing up today survived, but it's only a matter of time before someone does not, Northup said. In Tennessee, a federal grand jury indicted five former Memphis police officers for the beating death of Tyree Nichols in January. In addition to state second-degree murder charges, the officers now also face federal civil rights conspiracy and obstruction charges. Video footage shows the men brutally beating, tasing and pepper-spraying the 29-year-old black father, during a traffic stop, which led to his death three days later. Tyree Nichols' father, Rodney Wells, spoke Tuesday following the new indictment. This is a long time coming, and we're so glad that we've reached this point. Mm-hmm. Now, the next milestone is the actual convictions. Mm-hmm. Amen. That's right. Yeah. Justice for Tyree! Justice for Tyree! Justice for Tyree! Justice for Tyree! In Ohio, the family of Takiya Young is demanding justice weeks after the 21-year-old pregnant mother was shot dead as she was attempting to drive away from a Kroger grocery store parking lot. The police pursued the young black woman after accusing her of shoplifting. Body cam video was released Friday. The family's lawyer, Sean Will Walton, said, quote, What's clear is that petty theft does not justify murder, and comply or die is not the rule of law in this country. The fact that an unarmed woman was shot unjustifiably, then dragged from her car and handcuffed after being shot, should shock the conscience of everyone, he said.
Opening arguments took place in a D.C. courtroom Tuesday in the closely watched antitrust case brought by the federal government in 38 states and territories against Google. They accuse Google of illegally protecting its search engine monopoly by paying billions of dollars to Apple and other smartphone companies and web browsers to be their default search engine. It's the largest antitrust lawsuit brought by the U.S. government against a major tech company since the Justice Department sued Microsoft over 20 years ago. U.S. District Judge Amit Mehta is presiding over the case. He could theoretically order the breakup of Google should the company lose, though analysts say it's more likely Google would be forced to change its business practices. A loss for the government could have implications for its ability to regulate tech and other industry monopolies. The trial is expected to last 10 weeks. In a major victory for climate activists, New York University plans to divest from fossil fuels. Student organizers have been pushing for the divestment for nearly 20 years. The Guardian reported the chair of the NYU Board of Trustees announced a decision in an August letter addressed to Sunrise NYU. The group wrote on social media, quote, this is a huge win for climate justice. Congratulations to every student organizer who made this happen, they said. And in Washington, D.C., at least 34 indigenous activists were arrested as they rallied in front of the White House, calling on President Biden to grant clemency to political prisoner indigenous leader Leonard Peltier. Peltier has maintained his innocence over the 1975 killing of two FBI agents in a shootout on the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota. His conviction was riddled with irregularities and prosecutorial misconduct. This is indigenous writer, historian Nick Estes, speaking at yesterday's action, which took place on Peltier's 79th birthday. All Leonard Peltier was fighting for is the future of our people as indigenous people because they tried to take that away with boarding schools. They tried to erase our children. It's not just about taking them and making them speak English. When you steal youth, you try to steal the future. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. Coming up, more than 6,000 people have died in the Libyan city of Derna after a massive storm caused two dams to burst, leading to a catastrophic flood. We'll go to Libya to speak with a youth climate activist. Stay with us. Camp. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. 
Well, in Libya, at least 6,000 are feared dead. Thousands more remain missing after a catastrophic flood in the eastern city of Derna. Torrential rains from Storm Daniel caused two dams to burst, wiping out whole sections of the city. Water reached 10 feet high in parts of the city. The United Nations has called the flood a, quote, calamity of epic proportions. Rescue operations have had difficulty reaching Derna because there's only one unobstructed road into the city. In front of Derna's hospital, people are searching for their loved ones amidst piles of dead bodies lined up on the ground. This is the hospital's manager, Mohammed Akabisi. The number of dead in this particular section is 1,700 deaths so far. We counted them as they were lying in the hallways. Whoever is identified is then buried. There are some who have not been identified. So we started photographing them and assigning numbers to them, then burying them as well. On the other side, they buried 500 people. Things are very bad. The hospital is dilapidated. Mohammed Kamati, who lives in Derna, said many people were sleeping when the dams failed. Then we heard that the dam had burst and the water had flooded the area. People were asleep and no one was ready. But this is what happens. What can we do? For me, my house is next to the valley, opposite the Al-Shahaba Mosque. The whole family lives next to each other. We're all neighbors. We lost 30 people so far, 30 members of the same family. We haven't found anyone. Much of Libya's infrastructure has crumbled since 2011, when the Obama administration and NATO backed an uprising against the longtime leader Muammar Gaddafi, setting off years of war and political upheaval. Derna's mayor said the city's dams have not been maintained in over 20 years. The flood was caused by a rare hurricane-like cyclone in the Mediterranean known as a Medicane. It's the same storm that brought unprecedented flooding to Greece, Turkey and Bulgaria last week. The floods come just a week before a major summit on the climate crisis at the United Nations here in New York. Greenpeace International said, quote, governments must act now to end fossil fuels that are plunging us deeper into climate disaster every day. We go now to Libya, to the city of Tripoli, where we're joined by the youth climate activist Nissa Beck. Thanks so much for being with us. I know that Tripoli itself was not physically affected by uh, this catastrophe in Derna. But if you can describe what you understand has happened there. I mean, we're talking about 6,000, perhaps 10,000 people dead at this point, Nisa. Condolences. Yes. Thank you so much. Um, first of all, allow me just to clarify that although uh, Tripoli itself is not affected by this very specific event, it does not mean that the west uh, part of Libya is usually not affected by uh, heavy rainfalls or even um, other smaller um, storms. Uh, in fact, just last week, the city of Zlitan, which uh, is located in the western part of Libya, drowned completely. It was flooded completely just because uh, um, of six hours of rain. And uh, the whole flooding thing is not news to us. We've been struggling with this for years because, as you mentioned, Libya is struggling with poor infrastructure. And it's been like that for years beyond, actually, the, the 2011 revolution, uh, even at time, uh, even during the times of Gaddafi. Most of the well-constructed uh, buildings 
Uh, we have them since the time of the Italian colonization. It was constructed by the Italian government over 100 years ago. Those remain until today. However, most of the, um, uh, the structures that were built, uh, during the 60s, it's, it's, it's usually, um, easily affected by rain or even simple weather changes. As for what happened in, in Derna, it was actually expected. I've expected this to happen for the longest. You know, as a climate activist, I'm, uh, I'm always pursuing, uh, government officials. I'm always doing my best to communicate whatever information that I have. Um, this is not the first time that Derna goes through this. It went through it uh, twice before in the past decade. It went through it in the 40s and again in the 80s. And just two years ago, uh, Mr. Um, Abdelaziz Ashour, who is a civil engineer, published a paper with the University of Sabha uh, where he warned that both of the dams are very fragile and he expected that they will be falling apart very soon. He also um, he also mentioned that we need to have a lot of tree planting in the area in order to combat the desertification because all of the sand in the area or like the dry area will only make the flooding uh, like much worse. So it's something that we have expected. Um, in fact, ever since uh, this catastrophe happened, uh, they talked about it a lot in the news from many different aspects, but not climate aspects. They did not mention anything about climate change and in what ways the, uh, the government is at fault at what happened. Because as we mentioned before, this is, uh, it was, Derna is like the fourth stop of the Daniel storm. Okay. However, it's the one that is most affected by it. So just to give you a bit of a background on the climate crisis here in Libya, uh, Libya did sign the climate change framework back in 2015 with the UN, and they did ratify the Paris Agreement back in 2021. However, uh, although the government been active at COPs, they did not submit any of the necessary national uh, determined uh, contribution or the national adaptation plans. So these documents supposed to include their risk reduction strategies. So in case something such as this happened, what will what will they be doing? Um, so the thing is, uh, most of the other countries already declared emergencies and they did evacuations in advance. Libya did not. As they've seen the storm coming our way and we had, uh, we knew that the storm was coming our way, uh, on its way to the Libyan coast. The government did not announce, um, uh, emergency. They did not have any evacuation. Not to mention, it wasn't until yesterday when the president came out and he mentioned and, and he said that please stop sending medicine and food. We don't actually need this type of aid. What we need is, uh, rescue teams, uh, search teams, as well as aid flights. So we're talking about a country that does not even have an aid flight. Uh, so when all the roads collapsed, they were not able to actually reach the people. So all of the aid that is being sent by the other countries is not even making it to the to the people. So every minute passed without an aid flight or helicopters meant tens and thousands of other people dying. So it took them two days to ask for that. And then they claimed on TV that, oh, yeah, we have a strategy and we're working on it right now. But obviously, they did not have a strategy. They do not have a plan. 
So this just well, shows uh, you that, yeah. Nisa, Beck, I wanted to ask you what has been the role of the, the Ministry of Environmental Affairs in, in uh, and also Given the fact that uh, for the for the past ten years, ever since the uh, the killing of Gaddafi, Libya has been has had to deal with competing uh, or conflicting governments, uh, two governments within the same country. Yes, that did have an effect, logistical effect. So, um, for example, even the aid that um, Egypt is offering, they're not actually communicating with the government that is acknowledged by the international community. They are in touch with General Haftar in the east, which is the government that is not recognized by the international community, which means that whatever agreement is taking place as we speak right now, the actual president of the country have no idea what is going on. So in that sense, yes, it's quite an issue logistically. but. Um, like like I said before, it's it's mainly a, a climate and environmental issue because, like I said, a huge part of uh, climate or our strategy to combat climate or natural disasters is about the risk reduction strategies that's supposed to be submitted during COPs, but they're not submitting anything. As for the role of the Environmental uh, Affairs Ministry. They're supposed to be playing the biggest role in this, but they're not playing any role at all. But to be uh, completely honest, I have a source that told me that the Minister of Environmental Affairs has been submitting a lot of projects and a lot of proposals to uh, President Abdel Hamid Dbeiba. However, he is the one who is rejecting all of those proposals. He just keeps postponing them. And therefore, uh, the, the Ministry of Environmental Affairs is not receiving any funding. And according to the employees of the uh, of the ministry, they haven't received their paychecks for over two years. So they are working without getting paid. And it's been like that for over two years. And and what about the the reality that as uh, as Libya confronts uh, the increasing dangers of the climate crisis, it still depends largely as a nation for its uh, uh, its foreign income on uh, the uh, on oil and gas. Yes, and we have uh, we have spoken about that. You know, we've spoken a lot about that, and they're still signing deals with uh, countries such as Italy for the next twenty years and the next thirty years. So they don't seem to take the whole climate issue seriously. And in fact, if you've spoken to any of the decision makers uh, regarding this, they're like, "Yeah, yeah, we understand, but we don't have to worry about that now." That's usually their reply. And I'm hoping that this tragedy could be the turning point for all of this and for them to actually take the climate crisis more seriously. Uh, Nisa, rich countries agreed to establish a loss and damage fund at the close of last year's UN Climate yes. Summit in Egypt. Um, dealing specifically with the global south, um, the worst effects of the climate catastrophe. The fund was a major breakthrough for global south countries, which have been demanding a similar mechanism for the last 30 years, um, but faced opposition from the United States and other large polluting nations. What are your demands of wealthier nations? To be completely honest, Yes, the main issue or the root of the issue goes back to the polluting countries, uh, such as the United States. But in this very specific situation, I cannot really um, say that 
it is their responsibility to fix what happened. Because like I mentioned earlier, it's obviously the, our government's fault. And the problem with this fund that it's not going to bring the lives that we lost back. It is something that comes later on, you know, when it's time to actually reconstruct Derna. Um, a lot of these countries will be putting, you know, some funds in order to help us reconstruct it. But at what cost? I mean, at that point, we've already lost so many people and we don't know how many other people we're going to lose in the upcoming few years if we don't actually deal with the problem more seriously. So right now, I cannot think of like, oh, it's uh, it's because of the U.S., it's because of China you know, I don't have that kind of mindset right now. It's because of my own government. In the future, however, I really need all states, whether they're from the global south or the global north, to take this fund seriously. And most importantly, take COP seriously. Take their NDCs and NAPs submissions more seriously. They've seen what happens when you don't take it seriously. You need a risk reduction strategy. You need to, you know, uh, put forward a plan uh, on like, what are we going to do in case this happened? You know, Libya has a very low level of precipitation. We don't even have a lot of rainfall. And they're like, flooding? What are the chances of us, you know, going through a flooding? Where? There you go. So well, that's what I'm expecting. Yeah. Well, Nisa, I want to thank you so much for being with us. We'll continue what's ha to follow what's happening in Libya. Nisa Beck is a youth climate activist joining us from Tripoli, Libya. Coming up, how Columbia University ignored women, undermined prosecutors and protected a predator for more than 20 years. Stay with us. Every finger in the room is pointing at me. I want to spit in the face Get afraid of what that could bring I got a bowling ball in my stomach I got a desert in my mouth Figures that my courage would choose to sell out now I've been looking for a savior in these dirty streets Looking for a savior beneath these dirty sheets I've been raising up my hands Drop another nail in Just what God needs One more victim Why do we crucify ourselves Every day I crucify myself Nothing to do is good enough for you I crucify myself Crucify by Tori Amos. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. A warning to our viewers and listeners. This story includes graphic descriptions of sexual assault. We spend the rest of the hour looking at how Columbia University ignored women, undermined prosecutors, and protected a predator for more than 20 years. That's the headline of a damning new investigation by ProPublica and New York Magazine. It lays out how Columbia University shielded obstetrician Robert Haddon for more than two decades. More than 245 patients have now alleged Haddon abused them. In July, we spoke with two of Haddon's former patients after he was sentenced to 20 years in federal prison. 
This new report details how Colombia often undermined the process of bringing him to justice in order to protect its reputation instead of acting in the victim's interests. Today, we'll be joined by Lori Kanyak, a former patient of Haddon, a professional dancer, who survived his assault in 2012, even called 911, which led to his arrest. But Colombia allowed him back to work the next week after he was arrested in his office. We'll also speak with the two ProPublica journalists. Their report begins with Lori Kanyak. She was a 38-year-old professional dancer who sought the care of Haddon because he um, uh, of his association with the prestigious Columbia University. At first, Lori dismissed Haddon's strange behavior while she was pregnant. But after she gave birth and saw him for a postpartum appointment in 2012, he assaulted her in a way she suspected he'd also done it past exams. As she laid on the examining table, her legs in stirrups, he licked her vagina. She texted her boyfriend immediately, who paid a cab driver $50 to rush a few blocks to pick her up, then called 911 twice, first on the drive back to their apartment, then when they were home. This is part of his conversation with the 911 operator. 911 operator 1520, where's your emergency? My fiance was at her OBGYN. Uh huh. And um, he basically did something inappropriate to her. So. Okay, did he? I just went up there and took her from there and brought her home. Did he harass her, sir? What? No, he, he basically touched her orally. Okay. How long ago did this happen? It's been now about half an hour to 40 minutes. Okay. Once home, two police officers came to take Lori's statement. As they did, Dr. Haddon called her cell phone. This is the voicemail he left. Yeah, hi, Lori. It's Dr. Haddon calling. It's like 4.30 on Friday. You know, I just got word that you called the office and you're upset and you were calling the police. What what the heck happened? What what's going on? Um, you know, please can can we talk? Um, if you can, please just give the office a call and and uh, you know or come back and you know talk face to face. I don't I don't understand. I just know that you know I just got word from like the uh, you know first from the secretary and then and then from our office manager here and the, the nurse. So uh, I'm very upset. I, I don't know what what's going on. So please if please call me back or um, all right. Take care. Later that day, police went directly to Dr. Haddon's office and arrested him. It was a Friday. But by Tuesday, Haddon had been told he had to have a chaperone with him while examining patients, but was then back, quote, in the exam room. Columbia let him continue practicing for another five weeks. Eight patients say he assaulted them in that time, ProPublica reports. Columbia has declined any interviews and an emailed statement to Democracy Now! An unnamed spokesperson at Columbia, quote, 
said Columbia was profoundly sorry for the pain Robert Haddon's patients suffered in his exploitation of their trust before reemphasizing that his, quote, conviction of federal crimes showed how he purposely worked to evade our oversight and engineer situations to abuse his patients. The statement continued, we also deeply regret, based on what we know today, that Haddon saw patients for several weeks following his voided arrest in 2012. For more, we're joined by Laurie Kanyuk and by Laura Beal and Bianca Fortas, who co-wrote this new investigation for ProPublica and New York Magazine. And Lori Beal narrated and wrote a podcast series called Exposed Cover-Up at Columbia University. We welcome you all to Democracy Now! Lori, let us begin with you. Um, Lori Kanyuk. Describe that day. I hate to make you go back in time, but you have done this repeatedly now, um, and you are determined uh, to make the university uh, uh, accountable for what happened. Why did you go to this doctor? What caused you to uh, make your first appointment with Dr. Haddon and then take us from there? Sure. Thank you for having me. Um, I learned I was pregnant in September, I think, of that year, and I was on tour with the show. And uh, I had a, an OBGYN who didn't take insurance. So, you know, we determined the pregnancy was viable and all of the things, and I was, quote unquote, geriatric. And she sat down with us and she explained the process and what it would entail. And she said to us, you know, this is costly. We can do it. You can pay out of pocket and you can submit it and you'll get back a fraction of that. And she said, you know, this happens quite often, and if you want to seek other medical attention, you can. And we decided to do that and find somebody that would take my insurance. I had a series of spinal injuries and things like that, so I had just had a procedure on my lower lumbar right at the same time. So I was, I was concerned for the safety of the fetus, and uh, my best friend of life worked at Columbia and was a patient of Robert Haddon's. And um, it's reputable. You know, how you back then, anyway, you, you thought I was lucky. I felt, you know, privileged almost to be under their care. So uh, the father and I met with Robert Haddon, and he seemed like a, like a grandpa, like a Santa Claus type, soft, mild, you know, unassuming. Reputation was there. It was he was protected by the university hospital, and we decided to go with it. And I hadn't given it a thought that he was a man. Or, you know, I was seeing a man. I was just maniacally concerned with the safety of this fetus and and seeing that everything was okay. So we were off to the races with him. Um, I guess it was October, late October. I, I don't remember exactly when, and. You know, he began the treatment. I had a series of genetic testing, and we learned that the fetus was completely healthy, and we were fine, and we decided, let's do this. Um, and then we, you know, we began. And I was, because I was geriatric, because I had all of these things, my main concern was her heartbeat and her, her health uh, through the whole thing. And as you mentioned, I, there were a couple of instances while I was very pregnant that um, when after it was like sort of an afterthought, and I, I, I said to myself the first time that that felt strange. But again, 
I would lay back and say, is there a heartbeat? Is there a heartbeat? I was, that was every visit. What and felt strange, my do- Lori? Oh, there was a, uh, there was the first time there was, uh, that I say that he licked me, which I didn't realize it was that in that moment. Um, it was a cold sensation. I was very pregnant and I couldn't see past anything, you know, I'm laying back. And he was doing an internal exam, which was sort of rare. And I didn't, I had never carried the term, so I didn't know what was normal. And you're trusting and you're just believing and you're hoping and you're waiting on bated breath every exam. So that was the first time. And I felt that cold sensation it was very quick. And I thought, I, I must be crazy. Like what that felt like maybe lubrication on gloves or something like that. And, and I let it go. And then later in the pregnancy, I had was he did my dilation check. And I had never had a dilation check before. So he announced to me that uh, it would hurt, I would be in pain, and I would bleed after. What did I know? And he proceeded to do the exam and was lifting my body off the table with his fingers inserted inside of me. And I clutched the side of the table with both hands. And he sort of... um, moaned or grunted and and i just it was so god-awful and just wanted it to stop again he announced it he told me exactly what it was going to be like and i believed it and i thought okay this is how it is and then i gave birth and he wasn't there thank god and i had a woman and uh, i had a team of women actually in the labor room and she had come in after you know 18 hours of labor and done a dilation check. And I just remember afterwards thinking, well, God, that wasn't the same thing. I was sitting up. It was very quick. And, and then I let it go because now I'm in labor and, I, and I'm pushing. And I didn't think of it. I had this beautiful baby girl. I was new. I was in love. You know, I was doing, I was just, and now I'm focused on the real thing. And I'd gone back for my postpartum appointment on June 29th, not thinking of any of that. Back down, my weight is back down, and um, he did a full exam and checked all the things, recorded all the stats. The, the nurse recorded everything, and she left. And he came back and said, uh, oh, I forgot. Uh, let me, how are your hemorrhoids? And I said, well, you were just there. You just did a full examination. And, oh, well, your stitches. And I said, again, excuse me. And he said, why don't you lay back down and let me see? And I knew. Um, But I was naked in a room with a man. And I froze because what do you do? How do you fight? And I thought anybody that's capable of doing something like that, I didn't, I wasn't sure what else he'd be capable of. And the rest we know. I'm happy to keep talking about it, though. Well, well uh, Laurie, I, I wanted to ask you, it, it, this 
in the wake of this uh, this horrific assault by him, could you talk about the, the police handled it properly? But what happened then with the prosecutors, with the Manhattan District Attorney's Office? And what did you feel afterwards with how they handled uh, your complaint? You know, aside from the day, the day of June 29th, I had been, you know, hustled over to get a rape kit. The police were amazing, honestly, and the detective, and they were, you know, pretty strong in their conviction to go and arrest him. Uh, and, and then I ended up at the ADA's office in late into the evening, giving my statement. And, you know, at that point, I thought, okay, I'm, I'm being cared for, and this is being heard, and they're going to do something about it, and I've stopped him. And then the week, weekend had passed, and the, when I learned that he had gone back to work, I, I, what is, other than disbelief, you know, you, you, not only I was in shock and I was processing all of this, but I thought, well, how, I just did what I thought was right as a human and to report a crime that was committed, a heinous crime, and it was un, really unnoticed. Um, I didn't know all of the inner things that was going on until, you know, this incredible article was released. I didn't, you know, I was sort of kept in the dark. There was a lot of, you can only know so much, and answered the questions and sort of dismissed me in a way that, okay, let us take it from here. So, and, sorry. Let's bring Laura Beale and Bianca Fortas into this conversation, who wrote this explosive investigation this week, how Columbia ignored women, undermined prosecutors, and protected a predator for more than 20 years. And uh, reported the podcast exposed cover up at Columbia University. I've listened to the first two parts. Those are the ones that are out. Um, Laura, you also narrate this uh, this uh, podcast series, which is incredible. And you hear all the women's voices. Um, if you can talk about what then was known uh, that Laurie couldn't have known that weekend. Right. He's arrested. She thinks things are being taken care of. But he doctor hadn't is allowed to come back to work the next week. He was arrested in his office. The authorities at Columbia knew this. Explain how this happened when he would then go on to assault one woman after another in the weeks that he was allowed to work. You know, I think that was one of the most shocking dis single discoveries in the almost two years that we reported this story is we knew um, that he had gone back to work. Um, you know, Lori had told us, uh, the attorneys had told us, like, we knew at some point he had returned to work and was in exam rooms with patients. What we didn't know is how soon he went back. And we discovered the letter that had been sent to him the next day. Lori's assault was on a Friday. On Monday, they sent him a letter and said, Oh, but you can go back to work. As long as you have a chaperone, you can go back to work. And that was shocking to us how fast he went back. And it also documented that they knew he had been arrested and that the highest levels of administration at Columbia knew that he had been arrested because they're all CC'd on that letter. And we were so surprised about it. And, you know, the statement you read earlier from Columbia, where they say, well, we're sorry, you know, he went back to work, given what we know now. In my mind, 
a 911 call alone should have been red flag enough to at least keep him away from patients while you investigate. And one of the people quoted in the in our story, you know, brought up the fact that it, it wasn't even like they talked to Lori and said, oh, well, you know, we don't believe her. We're going to let him go back to work. They didn't even talk to Lori. They never talked to Lori, even while they were investigating. And I think that in terms of their behavior, that is the most inexplicable decision in a whole series of inexplicable decisions. And, and Laura Beal, has anyone uh, in the hierarchy of, of Columbia University, the, the medical school, been held responsible uh, for uh, their supervision or their lack of supervision, their lack of investigation, their lack of seriousness in terms of dealing with a doctor who had been doing this for 20 years? Not that we can tell. Not that we can tell. And, and which differs from similar cases you know, of uh, serial sexual predators at medical institutions. There have been consequences at the institutions. Uh, there have been outside outside investigators coming in. There have been uh, people who've, you know, resigned, lost their jobs. There have been changes made. And, and we can't tell that any individual at Columbia has been held responsible in any way that we know. And we asked uh, I wanted to bring Bianca Fortas into this conversation. Uh, you're in New York. Um, I believe it was in this time, after Lori had called the police, they went and arrested him, uh, her partner doing the 911 calls, um, that he goes back to work for a few weeks. In that period, he assaults Evelyn Yang. Now, people may know Evelyn Yang's husband, Andrew Yang, who ran for president of the United States. Evelyn incredibly bravely came out to talk about uh, what happened to her and her shock when she realized Columbia had let him go back to work. That's when she was assaulted. Am I correct, Bianca? Yes, Amy, that's correct. Um, and she actually told us that when she learned— she, had, she learned later on that Haddon had been arrested and had gone back to work. And she looked at the dates and she said, well, how is that possible? That, that can't be right, that I was assaulted in July, but he was arrested in June. And so she later learned that he had, in fact, been allowed to, to return to work and, and had practiced for another five weeks. And so let's talk about that question Juan asked. Let's go further into the Manhattan DA's office. Um, uh, talk about the— from one phase to the next, what happens to him. I want to go to Karen Friedman Agnafilo, uh, former chief assistant district attorney in Cy Vance's office. He was a Manhattan DA at the time, speaking in the podcast series Exposed Cover-Up at Columbia University. We believed these women. It's not like we didn't believe them, right? But what we were doing was a cold assessment of how all this is going to play out at trial. And we thought the survivors are going to get beaten up pretty badly. Our office is going to get beaten up pretty badly. Agnifilo had once worked in the sex crimes division. She had seen women ripped apart on the witness stand by defense attorneys not even half as clever as Kirshner. We were worried that the survivors would be cross-examined with all of this information and then re-traumatized. Laura Beale, um, 
they, she was just referring to Isabel Kirshner there, the attorney, the Columbia University attorney hired for uh, Dr. Robert Haddon. Um, let's take this, the phases. He's let back to work. Explain how um, the DA's office then went after him, a very diligent ADA, uh, but overruled by the chief ADA, Karen Friedman, who we just heard, um, given a kind of slap on the wrist, charged with a felony, but n is allowed to—he never sees a night in jail. Explain the, the the series that happens from 2011, 15, 17, and where we are today. All right. So, so at the time of, um, I mean, the the short story is the case really got got consumed by the culture of the district attorney's office uh, at at the time, uh, circumstances at the time. Uh, Lori's case was originally dropped. Um, and so she filed a civil suit to try, because Lori is not the kind of person who is just going to let this go. And so she filed a civil suit to try to serve as some warning, some public message out there that he was a predator. Um, there was a small amount of publicity about that suit, and more women came forward. So he was finally charged in 2014 when the ADA on the case thought she had enough information to take it to a grand jury and get an indictment, which she did. Um, but then over the course of the next two years, the case really faced a lot of headwinds, both within the within her own department and also facing a very aggressive, skilled and capable defense attorney uh, who who was who knew the culture of the office. She was she was very aggressive in defending her client. And all of these forces came together. Um, when we talked to Laura Millendorf, who was the district attorney on the case, she never felt like she had the support for the case within her own department. She's dealing with a massive case. She had not only the six indicted victims, but then she decided to introduce the testimony of another dozen witnesses and something called a Molyneux motion, which basically allows you to bring in non-indicted testimony from other witnesses just to show that this was a pattern of behavior. There was resistance. She felt resistance to that. She was, you know, working on the case. And eventually, um, her she felt her own supervisors just wanted to make a plea deal. And one of the surprising things that we learned and not go to trial, and I should say that she very much wanted to take this case to trial. And she knew the she knew the witnesses, she knew the survivors. Despite the tape that you heard there about the that the survivors might get beaten up very badly, um, she felt very strongly that they could handle cross examination. Uh, but the decision was above her head. And surprisingly, we learned that the first deal on the table was only a misdemeanor. It was a misdemeanor, and which would have, of course, allowed him, if you only have a misdemeanor on your record, he could have just gone somewhere else and practiced medicine, which doctors do. They often—I I report on medicine, and, and it's an unfortunate reality that bad doctors are able to escape their past and set up shop somewhere else. Um and eventually, Karen Agnifilo became involved in the case, and she decided—she reviewed the case and 
decided it had to be a felony. It was not a misdemeanor. So at least he got a felony to the charge, uh, but that there would be there would be no trial. And that was pretty devastating to Lori and to the other witnesses, that the decision was made that there would not be a trial and that there would be no jail time. And and it's and it's really just surprising how the case disintegrated, not the strength of the case, but the prosecution of the case. And I think it was a number of factors that just came together against these, you know, to work against these survivors. And so he was let go. He was let go. And and that's one of the when I first learned about this story, that was one of the surprising things to me is that, you know, not only had this horrible thing happened, but that at the time I learned about the case, he was living in retirement in New Jersey and no one had been held, held accountable. And that's one of the that's one of the reasons I got interested in looking at this story is to just try to figure out how this happened. And Bianca, how did he end up getting tried then criminally this year and charged with 20 years? Also, let's not forget that um, Columbia University settled with over 200 patients, right, for something like a quarter of a billion dollars. Yes, that's right. <clears throat> Excuse me. So what happened was after he took the plea deal, some of the survivors started to speak out publicly. First was Marissa Hochstetter, who who you had on the show in July, and then notably Evelyn Yang, who was able to use her platform while her husband was running for president. So they started to speak out publicly. Um, it was revealed that uh, another woman named Diane Monson, who who is in Utah, she saw Evelyn Yang's CNN interview. And Diane had actually reported Haddon to Columbia in 1994. She had written a letter to the then acting chair of the OBGYN department, as well as the risk management department. And the acting chair actually responded to her and said, we hear you, we'll look into your concerns. But he never actually got back to her. And so more and more of the former patients started to come out publicly. As the numbers grew, the the DOJ started looking into the case. And so they actually indicted him in 2020. And I'd like to bring uh, Laurie Kanyak back into the conversation. Laurie, your response to how long it took uh, for uh, some measure of justice against uh, this predator and uh, uh, and the, the the role of the legal system in it. I was, um, you know, through the course of the last 11 years, was in hiding for a while. I, they had me sign a release. You know, uh, Laura Beale mentioned my civil suit that I filed back in, what was it, 2013, perhaps, that sparked the felony and the plea deal. Um, and at that juncture, I just thought, this is not a win, you know, and that just, and they hushed me. And they gave me a little bit of money and made me sign my rights away and, you know, said that I could never talk about this again to my family, my friends, nobody. And so I did that. And I focused my attention on my daughter and raising her. Uh, but then when I saw um, Evelyn's CNN interview and I learned about Diane Monson's letter, I decided that it was time to come back out of hiding and um, stand with my fellow survivors because I knew in my heart that that plea deal was uh, unfair. And, you know, nothing about that felt right. Um, OK, L he Laurie, lost his medical license. We have less than 30 seconds. 
he is now being imprisoned for 20 years. But you not feel enough. Columbia has been held unaccountable. What are you demanding? I want to see somebody, I want to see Columbia set forward the people that were responsible for concealing this crime for decades. Um, in all the other instances, USC, uh, Michigan, there were people that were brought forward and, and charged, and they are complicit. These people are complicit with his crime. Well, we have to leave it there, but I thank you so much for being with us and highly recommend this ProPublica New York Magazine expose. Laurie Kanyak is a survivor of Dr. Robert Haddon. Laura Beale, Laura Beale and Bianca Fortas co-wrote the investigation, How Columbia Ignored Women, Undermined Prosecutors, and Protected a Predator for More Than 20 Years. Laura Beale also hosts the new podcast, Exposed Cover-Up, at Columbia University. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez.